The final season of Power Book 2, Ghost, begins. And for Tariq St. Patrick, it's the moment of truth. In the wake of being betrayed, pushed out of the drug game, and almost killed, Tariq is out for revenge. Will he prove to be like his father and do whatever is to be done to protect his family and his future? Or is he his own man? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears. Real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's up, family? I'm your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of Street Politicians, the, the place, place where the streets, streets and, and politics, politics meet. meet. So we're working from home today. It's been a long, 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 long week and some change. I feel like, first of all, we were on the road and then we came back and it's been funerals and verdicts and a lot of trauma, more Black death, unfortunately. Um, and uh, we decided to stay home today and, and try to just, um, you know, work for my personal space. And I tell you, like, I don't, you know, I know I feel heavy, very heavy. Um, but also, I love how Black people lay our people to rest. No one does it the way we do it. Like, it's a family reunion, a party, um, a church service. Uh, you know, for DMX, I feel like I went to the mosque, the church, and the club. It's just so many things happen, um, you know, whenever we have services for our own. I think it was very similar with Dante Wright's service. It was beautiful. Um, and I love the fact that they use the music, especially when the procession first came in, to sing freedom songs, you know, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home uh, to my Lord and be free. Like usually, you know, you'll hear maybe Amazing Grace or something else that's a spiritual, just, you know, a, um, a sort of like a Christian song or a gospel song, but, but they chose to use Negro spirituals to set the tone for how the service started. And I was just, I was, you know, I felt good about it. So it's heavy because we know that all of these deaths and all the services and even the verdict while positive yet still in the context of so much trauma you know um but nobody i, I believe steps up to the constant again i can't find another word to use outside of trauma like we do yeah it was it was a it was a long week you know we we laid to rest one of our icons which was, was, was one of my mentors, um, and it, it was hard, you know. And then we went to the funeral for Dante Wright, which, which was also a beautiful funeral. But it's just hard seeing such a young man, mm -hmm. you know, 20 years old, that, that's just not going to be here anymore. 
You know, it was, it was so many different things. And then, you know, the Derek Chauvin verdict, which, you know, where we believe the correct, the correct verdict was definitely given in that case. So there was not really, not really to celebrate because you don't, you know, you don't, you wish that you don't have to celebrate Mm -hmm. that someone's going to jail or that we actually receive. You don't want to celebrate those things, but unfortunately America has given us so many down parts. We've seen, you know, justice not be served for us so many times that we actually have to celebrate situations like this, you know? So we, we, it just was like a constant roller coaster, man. But, you know, I do say that DMX's funeral was a beautiful, it was long, both of them was long, but you know, when you when you're talking about an icon, you're talking about a legend, and somebody who touched so many people in so many different ways, you know, it, it definitely it takes time. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things was that that stood out for me was you know Swiss said something that was really important about how we need to love. I mean, you know how X needed that love while he was alive, you know, and he wished that people had given it to him, and he, and he spoke candid about that, you know. Another one of the highlights was um, hearing Tashira, his ex-wife, who I know very well, man. Just hearing her come from her place of honesty and talk about their ups and downs, but just how much she loved and they connected, mm-hmm. you know, and then having a moment just embracing his new fiance and, and bringing their children together. I think there was, that was a lesson in class. She's always been a class actor. Tashira has always been such a classy beautiful woman, man. Since I've known her, she's always been classy, but she just took it to the next level, you know, because people would want to see drama. You know, yeah. people wanted to say, oh, something was wrong, but she she handled that so beautifully, man. And to see all of his children, 15 children in one space at one time, you know, it was it was just a blessing, you know. X, X would not be forgotten. He, he will live on, not just only through his music, but through the seeds that he planted here, man. So it, it was just so many different things that went on, man. And I just, you right, we had to stay home and just rest. As soon as we finish doing this, I'm yeah. going to lay back down because my body is just drained. My body man. weary. My body weary. My body weary. Yeah, no, I think that Tashira's example of womanhood and grace that she showed yesterday. I also love Tashira so much. Um, she's a beautiful sister from the first time we met um, at an event that I think Yandy um, did some years ago. We just connected, you know, and just became sisters. It didn't take several occurrences. We just connected and, you know, she would send, she sends me messages telling me she's praying for me and I the same Um, she's such a woman of God. And I think what people have to understand is that that doesn't just happen overnight. Like that's not, you know, she's been through a lot. She's been through a serious journey and she's in the process of writing a book right now where she's telling her story, which can definitely help somebody else because all of us have different situations and things that we've been through and you know, we suffer with those things. We suffer with, um, you know, not so much hiding, but the veil of the pain and not being able to really express it. Just seeing how strong she was when she walked up on that stage um, and even had to say a prayer for herself to get through it, to do what she knows that DMX would want her to do was so powerful. You know, I appreciate 
one, well, first of all, I wrote her and said that the world needed to see what she did at that service, right? The whole thing, speaking about the truth, you know, the trauma, what they experienced together as a couple for, I think she said for 39 years or something like that. But then also the embracing of his fiance, um, she set an example of what womanhood should look like, you know, and, and just humanity should look like. She wasn't with X anymore. You know what I'm saying? So to try to use her power in the room, because clearly she had power. She had, she, she possessed real um, power and presence because everybody knows her. You know, everybody feels like they grew up with DMX and Tashira and Tashira was his wife. She has, I think, four of his children. Um, she's, she's special, you know, and, and everybody knows that. And she could have held that and used it as a way to snub the rest of the children's mothers, but she didn't. She made sure to use her presence in the room to empower another woman that she knows DMX loved and had a child with and was planning to marry. So I, you know, I thought that that was probably one of the most significant moments of the entire weekend. Mm -hmm. And we all waited for her to speak because the day before she didn't speak. Nope. She didn't even go on the stage at the public service, which by the way, Kanye West and his choir, you know, I, I, I am often critical of Kanye um, and, and we should be because some of the things that Kanye has done and said, I think are very harmful. Um, and it's actually been very painful as a Kanye fan. But I can tell you that that choir and the way in which they, they present their uh, gospel tributes, they are truly, it's powerful. It's powerful. It, it was like soul reaching, you know? Um, and so that's one thing that brother can do well. But to get back to Tashira, you know, um, you know, as I just say this really quickly, it, it takes a lot for a woman who has been who has been traumatized by the public life, you know, and DMX being a, a, a ladies' man, absolutely, you know, you can tell that by the fact that he has thirteen children. Fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, yes. Oh well. Some 15. people say seventeen, but I know it's fifteen. Listen, he knocked. He was knocking on twenty. How about that, right? And you can only imagine what they went through, you know, over the years. Dealing God said, "Be fruitful." Yeah, Plant seeds right. and be fruitful. Yeah, right. But he was a prophet. But he was a prophet. But the way that she did what she did yesterday, it just it, what it did for me, mice, is it it made me reevaluate my own approach to life because I think healing is probably the first step towards being in the space that she's in. Is that you know that she's been through a healing process. So shout out to Tashira Simmons. We love you, sis. If you see this wherever you are, just know that you gave us a lot of power yesterday. So you, there's a cat. Yes, my cat. Just my mother's cat, rather. Just came from nowhere. I don't know. That's a very but interesting cat. Very, very interesting. But yeah, shout out to Shira, man. Like, like I said, she's always been a class act. It was just so many different moments, man. Um, just seeing the Rough Riders on stage, seeing their children on stage talk. They spoke so well. They did. They all spoke well. The minister gave a beautiful, yes, you know, his what he usually does. Um, 
And then, then there was just this one point though, that some brother, you know, decided that he wanted to utilize the space for his own. Now, it's always going to be something. Like, we ain't going to never just have a smooth all the way. It was a long time. Like, I wasn't mad. I was there five hours because it was X. I was hearing people, you know, I was getting this energy. But one brother thought that he was not recognized for his contributions to X, you know, and that he didn't have the amount of time to speak or nobody told him to speak. And he decided he was going to have, he said, I'm going to have me a Suge Knight moment at the at the Grammys or something and he went up there and he just started telling what he did you know throughout X's last couple of years and how the album that he just released wouldn't be done with I and and, and I get it you know a lot of people think they should have spoke a lot of people say Yo, why you didn't speak my people asking that why they you know I get it you wanted to this was somebody that you loved or cared for this probably was one of your close friends and you didn't feel that you had a voice I just thought that was not the time to express that and the way that you did it. And then he got up there, he wasn't talking about X, you know? If he would've went up there and said, yo, X did this for me, and X was this type of person, and X did this, people might've been more receptive to it. But he got up there and started explaining what he did. You know, I was the one that did this for X, and I did this, and me and X was like this, and I was doing this, and I just was like, you know, it just, it's always one moment you know, that they're going to be able to, see where, where we, quote, unquote, got some nigga shit going on, you well, know? Well, you know what I thought? Um, I recognize his frustration based upon the fact that even in my own life and in yours as well, there are people who feel like they were there before the fame, right? And even though D and Wa and the whole Rough Riders family, they came from nothing and made something, right? Tashira, or all these folks, a lot of people who spoke were folks who who started with DM, with, with Earl and he became the dark man, you know, DMX, right? So this guy seemed, he kept saying that he was in the group home with him. So he's talking about a time that is before anybody even meeting and recognizing the talent that DMX had. And I think he felt probably that that needed to be expressed. Everybody's speech included a lot of their own experience or how they felt or what DMX did for them. Um, but this guy, he was out of line for sure, absolutely. But sometimes we have to find the one person who can tell a story that most other people can't tell and allow them to say it so that you can just, you know, make sure you cover all the bases, right? Sometimes you just have to do that. And I guess in my, it, it, it just being a leader and an organizer, I've learned that when you go into a particular city or, you know, you working in certain spaces, you're going to have the person that's like, nah, y'all ain't going to just come here, you know, and the best thing to do is to give them a voice so that you don't have to deal with them trying to uh, do what this guy did yesterday. Although, again, what he did wasn't right. I'm not saying that it is, and I'm saying that two things can exist at the same time. He could be wrong, and there probably should have been a space for somebody who could say, I grew up with him in the group home because nobody else had that story. Everybody else's story begins at the point that he's recognized as a great talent, but with nothing. And they all help to come together and build what we now know. But he's telling the story that before there was any of this, I was, you know, I was with him. 
And then he seems like he was probably somebody that was there to, you know, he was a part of a part of a, a time in, in, in DMX's life that probably wasn't that good. So that he just wanted to tell his story, really. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't mind because there are friends that I've had before I've done anything, right? That'll probably be able to tell stories of our of our relationships and things like that from third and fourth grade. And and and, and those are relevant things that people might want to hear. I just think that his his whole premise didn't even reflect DMX to me. You know, he said, I was in there with DMX and I did this. And it wasn't for me the last two years of his life, he yeah. wouldn't have made this album. You know, me, we I was there like yeah. You didn't come there to celebrate him. You didn't say, yo, X did this for me. And, I, and you know, we was together doing this and he, he helped me do this. Like, he didn't come to share and reflect on the positivity it's and celebrate it's, narciss it's narcissism. Yeah, it's, it's, it was, he almost got beat up, man. I had to stop a lot of them boys. Them boys like, what he said? I'm like, chill, relax. You know, if it wouldn't have been a church, I don't know if he'd have made it up out of there, man. But God bless him. The, 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 the pastor, A.R. Bernard, said a, said a prayer for him. You know, he understood that we all we all dealing with things. I just thought that that you know that just wasn't the right time for that. But other than that, man, everything was beautiful. You know, just just seeing people that I haven't seen in a long time. Unfortunately, you see a bunch of people that you haven't seen in years at funerals. You know, and um, it just made me reflect. Just think, you know, just be grateful because we we not promised tomorrow. And it made you realize that you know you have to be aware you have to tell people you love them you know you gotta you gotta embrace like I said we gotta give flowers while people are living and we yeah. also just gotta live in fullness yeah you know, try to live in fullness daily and just thinking about all that was said at the services one of the things that came to me was this whole idea of you know where people were saying in, in on social media like after dmx passed People were like, why didn't anyone help him? Why didn't anyone help him? The same conversation comes up around Black Rob, um, who I don't think enough attention is being given to the fact that he also passed away. I mean, obviously, DMX is larger than life, so, you know, he's going to suck up the energy. But I do think that the focus should shift immediately to Black Rob because I noticed that so many of, of you all, you know, young artists and just people in general love and appreciate him. And we watch the end of his life be really painful. You know, it looks- His funeral is actually on Friday. I just received information that his funeral will be on Friday. Yeah, so hopefully we have a real strong build up to that as well and that people show up. I think what Swiss was saying was different from the point that I want to make. Swiss, he was, he was basically saying, you know, people, we talked about vultures, folks showing up when someone dies, uh, everybody grabbing for what they believe is theirs. And he said that, you know, people need to be there to support when a person is alive. So I get that. But there is this specific narrative around folks asking, why didn't people help X to deal with his drug addiction? Like, why didn't people get more involved? right and my thought of the day is sometimes people are not ready for help right they're not ready for help and the idea that we think that because we didn't hear it out in the world that folks weren't trying to help 
and that they weren't having these conversations with him is to me, it's, it's kind of disingenuous or it's, 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 it's presumptuous, right? And, and I think wrongly so, because I'm sure that people around him did try to help him and to talk to him. But when you grown, if you want to get high, if you want to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever, you will find a way to do that. And I just think about even in my own life, dealing with addiction, people talked to me, you know, and, and it was a small group of people who knew about what was going on, but also it didn't even mean, no, those people didn't have to beat me up. I know from seeing as a child growing up what addiction can do to you. So I knew myself, but it, it wasn't until I was ready to deal with it, right, that I actually made a change. So I'm just thinking, you know, do we need to, what do we do? Do we knock somebody over the head and tie them down without, you know, without their consent? Because I don't even think that's legal. Or how do you help people who are not ready? I, th I think it's a process. I think when we look at the situation and we talk about specifically DMX, he was very complex. He was a very complex individual. I think you look at, he had mental health issues. He was... He had addiction from a very young age. You know, age of 14, somebody pretty much introduced him to drugs, who slipped him drugs, you know. Then he had dealing with just his own personal things that pre none of us even know about, you know. So when you think about that, it, it's, it's going to take longer because when you do something for so long, it becomes who you are. You know, it, it ain't like it was just something that, oh, it happened to him, so we have to change it. His, his, it became... A part of him so his changing process was way different and I, and I know if you just just talking about DNY just talking about Swiss just talking about Tashira just talking about even when his pastor was talking about you know the interaction that she had and how she talked to him and how they embraced each other you know he had people that loved him he had people that wanted to help him you know I don't know necessarily know whether or not he didn't want to receive the help. He didn't know how to go or, you know, it, it wasn't time for him. Or, you know, sometimes, you, all the times you have to be prepared to receive help. There's a lot of people that want to give you help, but you have to actually be prepared. And especially as an addict, you have to say, you, you have to make up your mind that you don't want to do it no more. Nobody can make up your mind. I went through that for years with my mother and going through situations and, and crying and doing everything and doing everything and the day that she decided she said she woke up one day and said i just don't want to do this no more mm -hmm. and that's when she you know she decided that she was going to move forward and for 20 plus years she hasn't she's been free so you know drug free so it's a process you know so like you said that people have to be ready to receive the help they have to make up their mind that they want to receive the help we should always try you know i don't, I don't know if dmx's situation is the situation that we talk about where people don't don't try to help people there are situations where there are times we see people going down certain roads and nobody does interfere some people just in you know they um empower it they they you know they make somebody feel comfortable in this iniquity and they don't stop them so we have to talk about those too but i think in this situation it's just a little different yeah i mean i think you know and i wasn't that close to the situation but knowing Tashira knowing Swiss and Alicia, right? And, and the relationships of all these individuals and just hearing 
Y and D and, and even you talking about stories of things that's happened in the past, you know, D and his real struggle and fight to try to save DMX and to make sure that he was good. I think there were people there to help. Of course, there's always going to be enablers. We know that. that, that that's always going to be the case. But I think when we lean on enablers who are also traumatized, also got, they have issues. They were never really your friends in the first place. And even if they are, they have, they're weak. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have the strength that it takes to go up against a, somebody who was also strong. So they just kind of fall into place and, and, and that's how they deal with all, everything in their lives. But there are people who were there to help. And it kind of reminds me of that story in the Bible uh, or maybe it's a, a tale that people give. I don't know if it's in the Bible or not, but when they talk about Jesus sending the boat, you know, and 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 I think it's I think it is kind of like a, a old folks tale. But they say that, old wives tale, huh? An old wives tale. Um, but they say you know he sent multiple modes of uh, transportation, if you will, to get the people out of the wilderness, and they are like. Well, I'm still waiting for the Lord to show up. Well, he already showed up in so many different ways. And I think that we spend so much time trying to chastise people and trying to find the one who didn't do instead of focusing on the, the many who did. And, and in my in my situation, you know, I could say that no, nothing that anyone said, you know, there were conversations that I had with each person who knew. But there's nothing that any one person said that was more powerful than what I was saying to myself, than mm -hmm. when I started talking to myself. That's when the real power came. That's when the real shift came. When I said, Tamika, you have to go, you know, you have to get yourself clean. You know, today there is a memory of a Time 100 article where um, Bob Bland, Linda Sarsour, Carmen Perez and I are in the magazine and it's a, um, a story that was done on us because we led the women's march. This was four years later. Um, and you know, that was, that was the time in my life, the first time in my life that I became addicted to prescription medication because of the stress that I went through during the women's march, just trying to get some sleep, just trying to calm myself down from the tension and anxiety. It's no joke to be in a situation where you are the leading black woman in an environment where you're dealing with the white supremacist who just became president, still dealing with the, the issues happening in our communities that we deal with every single day, people still getting shot and killed, still supporting families, you know, dealing with white women who, uh, who, who many of them were not in the movement, and even some of them who think they were in the movement were still abusive. Um, you know, dealing with the trauma and challenges of my personal life with my own kid. Like, it was a lot. It was a lot happening. And I know that with through the addiction that I suffered, there was nothing that anybody could say. Y'all all said things. Those people who knew who were a part of the small circle said things like, you got to get it together. We'll help you. It was I, it was me that picked up the phone and called a friend and said, could you please help me get into a program? And then of course my, my other friends, you know, Rachel Nordling and others supported me through that process, but nobody could take, 
could take me anywhere on my on it, you know, against my will. There was nobody that could do that. It's something that I had to be ready to do for myself. And I understand because I suffer with addiction. I'm not addicted today. Thank God I've been clean for two years. And I'm so, you know, uh, grateful that God saved my life. But I still have to always claim that because they tell you when you're going through the process, if you don't understand addiction and how quick it can grab you back, and you think that you're just living free and that you don't have to do the work on a regular basis, you can find yourself relapsing. And so I understand because when stress comes on me, even today, like when I'm when I'm dealing with stress and I'm dealing with, um, and I feel the tension because of the fact that I'm strong-willed and I know that the experience that I had with addiction um, was something that, you know, it was a one-hit wonder. It's never going to happen to me again. There's nothing, there's nothing that anybody could give me or any feeling that's so good that I'm going to find myself going out and getting addicted again or relapsing. But I, I understand how when you're going through so much and you're back in the public eye, and, and look, the last thing I'll say on this is that I was removed. I removed myself. I literally resigned from an organization that I started that nobody could put me out of. My name was on all the bank accounts. I was, my name was on the incorporation documents. So you couldn't put me out the women's march. But I chose to leave for my own mental health and to be able to focus on the communities that I know need me and, and, and my skill set the most. So I removed myself. But DMX was never able to remove himself from all the stuff that he was dealing with. He was, it was his life every day dealing with the ups and downs of the industry, the stress, the family, the, all of it, the trauma that he faced as a child, that stuff he was never able to remove, remove himself from. And so I think we all can learn so much from his story. We can learn so much from, um, you know, the way in which people loved him and the way in which they, they as his family and friends have sent him away. Um, and hopefully his life in, and the way that it ended so abruptly will save somebody else who's watching with all the same traumas and people who look you look at every day. Because what did Minister Farrakhan say? A lot of people in public, they one thing, but they're not really that behind the scenes. And I took that to mean a lot of things. But one of the things in the context of DMX's life is that there's a lot of people out here suffering with addiction because I never looked like I was suffering. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of people out here that's going through a lot of things behind the wall, but their Instagram page is popping. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app.
There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that could become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year? their year these are the moments of unscripted pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood you've waited all season for this it's time to take it to the next level the nba finals continue tune in on abc so that brings us to our streets is talking segment streets is always talking and today they are talking about these governors who are putting together policy that makes it okay for people who are driving to actually run over protesters. Now, this is crazy to me. Like, just to, to mentally fathom this, when we think about what happened in Charlottesville, they want, they want that to be legal. They're, they're legalizing that. They're giving people the legal right to run down protesters without having any legal recourse. Like, I don't even understand how somebody thinks that makes sense. Like, we really just saying, hey, you could just kill somebody because they protest. If they protest it and they in a way, go on and kill them. You know, I don't I don't even understand who comes up with this shit. I was I was looking for the young lady's name just so that we make sure we call her name. Heather I, I forgot it. Yeah, Heather Heyer. Um, and it's not just mowing down protesters. That's one part of legislation that's being passed across the country that pretty much makes it illegal to protest in some ways, or at least that even the general public can take their own liberties with how they want to deal with protesters. To your point, that was very good that you brought up, Heather Heyer, that these things could actually be legal. And what I think people need to understand, Mice, is that there is a backlash every single time we have even the slightest bit of progress. Now, I know people will say, well, Joe Biden is not progress for our communities because still to date, we are waiting to see what the Biden administration is going to do specifically on policing um, as, you know, as, as it relates to the Black community. So I agree. We're all on the same page about that. We believe that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has to pass. It needs to be signed immediately, and there needs to be more done even following that particular legislative item or that package. But we have to put ourselves 
in the mindset of white supremacy. Because when you think about white supremacists and how they operate, in their mind, we have gotten some form of progress done, right? In their mind. So we may, we understand that there's still mass, mass complications with any white man in office and other people of color too. We know that as a president, but they see it as we've actually accomplished a goal because we came together as communities of color and particularly black people and black women came together and, and ousted their dude. So they are in backlash mode and they're smart because they realize we might not have the White House, but we have states by having governors, senators, and otherwise who can actually come together and draw up legislation and then pass bills, right? Especially when, I gotta say it, some of the Democrats, they sleep on the job, right? They, they sleep on the job. There's no mass movement that's happening on the streets of these different states, right, to combat this. Why are we not getting calls from elected officials in these states saying, yo, organize, mass protest, hit the ground, we need to be on the ground? That, that, that's not happening enough. It did happen in Georgia, but it's not happening enough. These bills are getting signed, and we're hearing about it on TV as the pen is going to the paper, there has to be a better organizing strategy. It definitely has to be a better organizing strategy. You know, um, I, was, I was watching The Breakfast Club the other day, and Dr. Umar Johnson said something that was, you know, that, that was kind of profound. You know, he said, Joe Biden has this anti-Asian, you know, um, what, what is it, the anti-discrimination law for the Asians? It was the COVID-19 anti-violence like act or something. Yeah, violence act. And, 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 I, and I agree with it. He also said that there have been 200 laws that they introduced about anti-lynching, which affected yeah. Black people, that have never been brought into law. You know, and, and I think when you think about that, that, that makes you think like, wow, answer, you would think it's common sense. Hey, you just can't lynch people. Mm -hmm. You know, but lynching is directly attached to black people. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something, this was an Emmett Till law that they wanted to pass. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at that and say 200 times, nobody saw that, you know, it made sense to say that lynching is illegal. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's something that, that directly, you know, correlates to the pain and trauma of black people is illegal. Naming it after someone who was 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 killed for nothing that we know was pretty much killed that, that history records the person who lied on him admitted that they lied on him was killed for nothing and we can't, haven't got this bill passed i think you know we have to be very very alarmed at stuff like this you know it, it's alarming because like most of us we, we we hoping that this administration does more for us you know, that we're hoping that it changes a lot. But we, like I said, I'm always going to be critical and we're going to hold you to it and we're going to push the line every time. You know, so when we see disparities like this and we see situations like this and understanding what it actually says, we can't, I'm not, me personally, I just can't ignore that. I can't sit back and say, well, you know, I don't know what to say. No, I, I, it's not right. You know, so there's no way that we, we should not have an anti-legion law. 
There are other things that, that people are saying, Biden should be doing this. He's only been here 100 days. Okay, I'm going to give you a little more time. But certain things like this, these are things that should be advocated for right now. These are things that, you know, these these laws that they write in executive orders can be given right now. You know, there's no need for us to wait about an anti-lynching bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot more that can be done. And certainly, um, you know, we're going to be hitting the streets um, very soon to, to challenge Joe Manchin, uh, who is the senator from uh, West Virginia that has really been standing in the way of progress. And, you know, we're not stopping. So we always knew we were going to have to fight. We didn't think that Joe Biden was going to get in office and the world would change. We always knew we would have to fight, and we're prepared to do that now. And so, uh, you know, that's that's sort of where I stand on it. Um, I think that what we're seeing is not as surprising as some would think. They haven't changed. Nothing has changed. The only thing that we can do is go as hard um, in terms of the organization that it took to get a president and vice president elected. That same energy is needed in order for us to make sure that we're pushing policy as well. Now, to be clear, ACLU, as well as the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and people need to know it is two totally different things. There's the NAACP organization. Um, who has so many people in it that I love and and work with. Um, But there is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is a completely separate organization. They were established at a time when all the leaders were working together. So, of course, you know, the the names are are closely aligned. um, and, And there's history there that people should go read up on. But today, as we are sitting here, These are two separate organizations. They don't have the same board. They don't have the same president. One is led by Sherilyn Eiffel, who is a black woman. um, And and then the other is led by um, Derek Johnson, um, who's a black man. Two separate organizations. But ACLU, uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and many others, and I think also the NAACP, don't quote me, but I believe uh, so, they are suing some of these states for the laws um, that they're passing, that they're signing into law. They are, they are suing them. There are actual lawsuits out there, and those organizations matter as well. There's so many layers to what has to be done to, to fight back and to push back against white supremacy, uh, you know, that we, we don't have enough people doing the work. So that's the deal. We need to keep our eyes on these different states, and you need to figure out, who is your governor? And what type of policy are they looking at? What's the conversation? It's not hard to find because they organize, they have rallies, they have conversations. It might be Zoom now, but nonetheless, if you go to their websites and you read up, you can see where they're leaning in terms of policy um, and in terms of their opinions and, and feelings about what should happen in your state. Do some research. Find those things out because you might be the one to say, whoa, is something happening here? And before they actually sign this law or this bill, we are going to hit the streets and push back. They are not going to stop if they think that the people are quiet. That's right. We always going to push back, man. So just know that Joe Biden, we on you. Joe Manchin, we on you. Everybody that can do something for us, 
that got the, the ability to pass these laws and y'all trying to pass laws that directly target us as protesters, black people and everything, we on you. We on you. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36 month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year? Their year. These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. That's how we own it! You know, Mike, we always talk about all our friends. And today we have another one of our friends. We're in good company, though. We've got people that we work with every day. And Teslin Figaro is certainly one of those individuals, a dear sister, a dear friend, um, and a powerhouse. So I want to tell y'all, first of all, now, we tell people every day to listen to Teslin. So I, y'all should know. If you don't know who Teslin is at this point, you're missing out because we get educated every single day from this dear sister and powerhouse, our partner, really, in many ways an ally, accomplice, she's really an accomplice in this struggle. Um, so she is uh, the head of a communications group called Teslin Figaro Communications Group, where she does a lot of political consulting work. She also supports um, many families, particularly the most notable at this moment is the family of George Floyd, um, working alongside uh, Ben Crump, and I'm sure she uh, is a, a thorn in Ben Crump's side sometimes because she's always 
kicking it to him real and making sure that he's keeping his eyes open and his head on the swivel in terms of all of these different cases um, that he's working on and, and policy changes that need to happen in alignment with those um, cases. And then she is a part of the Black Effect uh, podcast network, Charlemagne's network that he started and brought all of us onto, which is a great podcast network. If you are not following Black Effect, if you are not a part of our family, you need to become a part of it right away. Um, there are many podcasts, not just um, street politicians, which we know is your favorite because we're number one. But there's some others that are also on the network. And one of them is Straight Shot No Chaser, where you really get the lowdown uh, from Teslin on a regular basis. And so we're happy today to have our sister, Teslin Figaro, Straight Shot No Chaser, because that is exactly who she is. Teslin, thank you so much for being with us, our dear sister and friend. Oh, what a warm introduction. Thank you so much. You said too much. I'm just a homegirl, but I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. It's an honor. It's always an honor to see Tez. Like you said, straight shot, no chaser. We outside. That's my outside partner. They hate when we say we outside, man. If you don't know Tez, Tez, listen to me. Tez will text me sometime like I'm about to go in on these clowns. You know, she, she'll text me like, look, tune in because I'm about to go in. And I tune in. I get my popcorn. And she gonna break it down to you. She don't duck no, she ain't ducking no smoke. You know what I'm saying? She gonna stand on what she's stand on every time. She's one of the favorite, one of my favorite people to just listen to and just get commentary from because it's always gonna be raw and authentic. And you know, we have so many similarities because we both have that hood background. You know what I'm saying? We have that background where we understand the dynamics of the streets, but we understand how to, to you know, to, to navigate through these suites. So, you know, she's definitely one of my favorite people. So now, since you're on here, I have a segment that I do, you know, and I seen you talking about this yesterday. So that's why it's perfect that you actually here. This segment is called I Don't Get. It. You know, and what I don't get right now is we know Micaiah Bryant was killed at the hands of the police. What I don't get is how we have so many people that come from, actually come from the communities and the backgrounds that we have that are justifying this 15-year-old girl being killed, shot pretty much in the back by an officer. You know, I, I don't get, I understand that th legally they can do this. I get it. You know, there is legal terms that justify it. But I don't understand how morally, our moral conscience and our moral compass makes people believe that it was okay for an officer to shoot a 15-year-old four times after about seven seconds from getting from his car, not asking no questions, not grabbing, not trying to intervene, but shoot her four times to end her life. And there's so many people saying, well, what else could he have done? I really just don't get that. I just don't get that mind state. Can you kind of help me or can you give me some understanding of what you think they mean or how you think people are, are viewing this situation. Yeah, and again, thanks for having me. My son, I really think it comes down to, it's a couple of people in the comments. Well, you know what I say in the comments, I'm talking about people overall that are making comments on this particular case. You have one, folks who uh, are simply white supremacists, 
uh, who are using troll accounts to be able to use this case as an example to distract from the obvious evidence from the George Floyd case uh, that nobody, that was very hard for anybody uh, to argue. This gives them a case to say, what about the knife? What about protecting the girl in the pink? You know, I know, I know you guys don't care about black on black crime because you're not standing for her. So it gives them an opportunity uh, to have a conversation that they've been waiting to have to say, look, 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 we told you people, black folks do try to harm other black people because we had an opportunity to say, look, 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 look at what happened with George Floyd. We told you that's what we've been talking about. So you have that person who is out there doing that, who is intentionally creating chaos around this to distract you into adjudicating every single step of this particular case. Then you have the second uh, person that's in the comments who is for Black people, for the movement, but they understand the word justification. They're having a language issue. When we say it's justified, we, we do not mean that it is justice, meaning that we are not treated equally, but they're using the word justified as a way of if we were to take this case to trial uh, and based upon policy, which you know I talk about all the time what needs to be changed, policy says that he had the right to intervene if he, if, if someone was uh, getting ready to cause him deadly harm or someone else, a third party. So there's people in the comments, I would say, that truly are just having a language issue and, are, and they're not strapped with knowledge and facts on what it is that you, Tamika and Linda and me and so many others are trying to talk about when we talk about overall policing. So you have these different elements, you know, that are going on at the same time. And actually, you know, I was talking to attorney Natalie Jackson yesterday, Trayvon Martin's attorney, and she said, Tess, these are the cases that really show where people stand. It gives us an opportunity to have political education. It gives us an opportunity to go deeper into things that our, our community should fix within ourselves. And in addition to what we should hold uh, uh, the police or the government accountable for. When you say the words, it's not right. And when I hear right, and I was talking to our brother Charlemagne about this, but it's not right, it's not right. I think he even talked about it, you know, on The Breakfast Club. And so I reminded him of the quote uh, from Martin Luther King that said, morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Mm. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heart less. So when we're using language to say, but it's not right, but it's not right. My question is, how do we fix it? Right. How do we legislate morality? Well, we can't legislate morality. We also don't want to say who's in charge of determining what's right and what's wrong. Because more likely than not, most of the things that we do will be determined not right. So when we're advocating what is it that we're trying to change about this situation? I did my live. Uh, I'm so glad you guys stopped in because I want to make a point to everybody, uh, particularly those that are challenging Until Freedom and what you guys do. Your role is an activist. And I need people to get this. Like, understand that you don't do what they do. We need you pushing the line all day, every day for Black life, period. That, that goes for Micaiah, the young lady in the pink, uh, George Floyd, whoever else, the many cases that you work on that people know nothing about. You have a role as an activist to, like we said in the hood, get active. You're a frontline soldier. So when I see people say in the comments, 
well, they should be saying this or they should be saying that. No, your role is to do what they won't do because the reality of it is they get to go to work tomorrow and say, I'm turning it off. I've had so many people, and you know, we talked about this with the George Floyd case. So many people that I've known throughout my career that's never called me to do a mental health check-in until the George Floyd case because they said, how do you deal with this every day? I said, right. this is every day. Like y'all just not paying attention, but they were forced to turn on the TV. They couldn't look anywhere without hearing about it. And they said, I cannot deal with the trauma. And I said, this is why, you know, it requires a personality like Tamika, like Masan, to be able to have the, the, the armor of God, as, you, as I would say, to be able to go out and fight these battles while everybody else go to work on Monday. So we need you turned all the way up, 10 and higher, because of what you've been called to do. Now, for people like me, and, I, and I'm just, I'm framing this, and I, I won't be long, but I'm framing this because I want people to get this. People like me that are political commentators on TV, I got two minutes and 30 seconds most times to respond to a question. I have to answer the question. I have to give an uh, answer what they ask. I have to give uh, my point of what I'm trying to get out all in two minutes and 20 seconds. So when I have less than three minutes to take a stand, I am standing for Black people. Let's never get that twisted. These types of platforms allow us to have the overall conversation on what is it about this case that is, that is stuck, keeping people stuck and, and making people feel some type of way. What I would say, my son, is there's three things, and we talked about this before. There's protests, there's policy, and then there's punishment in that order. You cannot have policy without protests. I'm sick of folks saying protesting doesn't matter. You cannot have policy without protests because somebody got to pull somebody's card, period. Next is policy. If I were to say, I want people to consider what is it that is going to change police officers killing unarmed black people in our community when they arrive on the scene. Let's give some facts quickly. A thousand civilians are killed each year by law enforcement officers. Black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by the police. There was another study that said black people who were fatally shot by the police were twice as likely let me say it again, twice as likely to be unarmed opposed to white people. There's another stat from Texas A&M and College Station. Folks can look this up. 2 million 911 calls in two U.S. cities concluded that white officers dispatched to black neighborhoods fired their guns five times more than black officers. Does that mean that black officers uh, don't break the... Uh, keep the wall, the blue wall of silence? Absolutely. There was a, a black officer on the scene with Micaiah. We are certainly not saying that black officers are better than white folks. What this says is that black officers that respond to situations in our, our neighborhoods are five times less likely to shoot a gun. Maybe because they don't have a fear for my life. Maybe because they don't see another black man as a threat. Maybe because running away doesn't hurt their ego, their white privileged ego. Because resisting only hurts the ego. It doesn't hurt anybody but the ego. When you're running away, when you're trying to get away like Dante Wright, the ego is saying, how dare you do this? And then me shoot. That is an ego issue. And we have to start using that language as such. So mm -hmm. people that don't like the Makai Bryant case, I tell them this. If you don't like this, then pick one that you do like. Going back and forth trying to adjudicate with every single person is draining the energy of the movement and it is strategically being done. Because at the end of the day, I continue to keep asking people, if they say, well, she had a knife, 
okay, I got you. Now, how do we stop black people from being killed five times more than, than anybody else when the police are called? Well, she was getting ready to harm the girl. Okay, I got you. Now, how do we stop people from being killed five times more likely when they respond in our neighborhood? Oh, well, he was resistant. Okay, I got you. Now, how do we respond? If you continue to keep asking that, for those who give a damn about what's happening with black people, if you give a damn about what happened with black people, that's the talking point. Continue to ask that. And you know what that's going to do, my son? Make them come up with a solution. Nobody wants to come up with a solution. It's better to just continue to be a clown in the comments. The bottom line is, what do we do to make sure that unarmed black people, well, Makaya was armed. Okay, but what about five times more likely the unarmed black people get killed? Throw it back to them to give them a solution. Because then you have to say, what do we do? What do we we do? pass the Justice and George Floyd Act. Senator Joe Manson, get off your ass and make it happen. It right. makes you take a look and see who your leader is. Oh, that's not going to do nothing either. Okay, well, we know not doing nothing. Damn sure not going to do nothing. So we can continue to keep saying what's not going to happen, what's that going to happen, or we can continue to push the line. And that's so important. I think everything that you said is, you know, very clear. And I think it also helps us as advocates in terms of when we are uh, making a case for individuals, for policy change, for whatever it is, that it has to all be rooted in the solution. Um, and that's why uh, I think you saw in a lot that the four co-founders of Until Freedom did the other day, we were talking about defunding the police and explaining the system that has been created in New York to deal with violence. It's a solution and it can be um, used across the nation. It's a model for the entire country of how you take money from police departments and put it into programming within our community that deals with mental health, that deals with um, you know, dealing with families that are traumatized for a multitude of, of, of reasons, um, dealing with, with different issues. Um, it also deals with drug abuse. Um, it deals with clean food, um, you know, and, and addressing the issues of food deserts. I mean, there's so many things that can happen if you don't put $6 billion, like in New York, into policing for them to buy military equipment that they barely ever use, except when they show up at protests. Because for the most part, the issues that bring police out in military equipment, because we don't have terrorism um, issues every single day, not saying that there doesn't have to be a closet or a locker room somewhere that's got all the things you need in case we are attacked. We, we, we agree that there needs to be a response to that. But we see police officers on our street corners, dealing with protests with tanks and military equipment that they should not be using to address protesters who, by the way, we're not protesting to say we want the right to go break in a store and steal clothes. We want the right to just cause man. No, you killed somebody. You killed one of our beloved family, loved ones, you know, people we, we care about. And the response is to cover it up or to ignore the pain that is coming from the community and then to meet us with military equipment as if we are the criminals, as if we have committed the, the act that caused the unrest. And so that for us, um, to your point, 
is a solution and it's something that we constantly talk about. And I think in the Micaiah Bryant situation, your language and, and your explanation around how officers are five times more likely to kill people in our community, particularly white officers. Again, we know black officers do some of the same things, but we know that in most of these cases, it is a white officer who has committed um, an act of killing, abusing, and threatening the life of of, of a black person. And I saw this on Joy Ann Reed's page. I thought it was really important and wanna read it um, to you all today. So this is a tweet that she put up where she is advocating uh, for Micaiah Bryant. And in fact, it is a repost from Amanda Seals. Um, I don't know who Molly Shaft is, maybe you all do know, but I don't know. So she says, while national eyes are on Columbus police, because of the horrific slaying of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant, let me remind you of recent events that demonstrate the irredeemably tyrannical, racist, and violent nature. She's talking about the police department. So she shows the night before Micaiah was killed, thousands of white Ohio State fans celebrated a practice football scrimmage by flipping and burning cars. Police did not come and no one was arrested. Okay, but you'll say, well, but that's still not someone charging at another individual with a knife. So these are other stories. CPD killed Casey Goodson Jr., who was walking into his home with a Subway sandwich for his family. They killed Andre Hill just a few days after that. He was in the garage of his friend's house after dropping off Christmas presents. Um, I think that that's also a case that um, uh, attorney Benjamin Crump is, is on and is fighting for his family. Uh, the Monday before, Columbus police shot and killed a black man named Miles Jackson in the emergency room at St. Anne's Hospital after bringing him there for a suspected overdose. Of course, it talks about Micaiah Bryant. Now, this was what I thought was staggering. It says, in the last five years, CPD has killed more than 30 people, most of whom were Black. Tyree King was 13. Julius Tate was 16. Abdurrahman Salad was, was 15. Henry Green and Donna Dalton were 23. Okay, and there's a list. There's a list of other individuals. Now, there will be some people, Teslin and my son, who will make the case that, well, this situation was different. But I submit and will continue to say that I do not believe that police officers who know the communities they work in, they, they may not know the individuals, but they know the demographics. They know when they show up that it's more than likely Black folks in this neighborhood, white folks in this neighborhood, Latinos in another, and so on and so forth. I do not believe that police officers are showing up to places where 16-year-old girl, a 16-year-old girl, Black women, to your point, maybe they didn't know she was 16, but Black women are having a fight, and, 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 I, and let me say it in the reverse, because that's my point, where white girls, white women, are in an altercation where they pull out their weapon and shoot four times to the body, a young white girl. I don't see it happening. Now, somebody said to me, well, there was this case over here and this case over here. 
okay, perhaps there's been one or two times. There's nothing that's absolute in life, right? Except the fact that we're going to die. That's it. So I understand that. But when we look at the numbers, it is overwhelmingly the case that police officers respond to our communities without discernment, without taking the time to figure out, and they kill people too often. And now a 16-year-old baby is dead. And of course, I'm not crazy. I understand the complications of everything that was happening. I get to your point when you say, you know, people want to talk about the force home. I get it. The foster home, the other parents, the, 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 the where were the adults? I get that. I am specifically dealing with the fact that we are burying too many of our own people at the hands of police. And I want to know what type of um, training, right? Because everything is about training. And I don't believe that training is the resolve. I do not believe that training is the resolve to this issue. I believe that, as you said, policy change and corrective behavior through accountability and punishment for when you commit crimes in our community is the only thing that's going to stop police brutality or to at least reduce it. That's what I believe. But if we're going to retrain, and that's a part, cool. Show me what the training is that Erica Ford of Life Camp in Queens, A.T. Mitchell, in uh, Man Up in Brooklyn, um, uh, uh, what's our brother's name in D.C., my son? Tony Lewis Jr. Tony Lewis Jr. in D.C. And the list goes on and on and on. Because as we know, most Black people do not call the police, but that does not mean that they're not dealing with issues, right? These anti-violence advocates, the social workers at school, teachers, in classrooms, on playgrounds, mama them, what kind of training do they have where they are able to disarm? And when I talk about these, these anti-violence advocates, a knife would be a nice day for them. They're dealing with guns, real weapon, weapons that folks, are, that folks have and kids have and are prepared to kill one another, another over all types of things. And somehow Erica Ford tells the story of just how last summer they literally took knives and bleach out of the hands of young girls who had gotten into a fight. Now, unless you're telling me that white people don't have these fights. So maybe that's the point. And my son, you can of course jump in here, but perhaps what they're saying is that white people don't have fights, they don't have knives, they don't get into these types of things that they are much more orderly in their communities and that when the police show up and they say, you know, drop it or they just show up because, you know, it, it was so much fighting happening in that moment. I could see how you don't even know that there's an officer there, which not to mention there are two other officers who are standing there who, are, who don't have their weapons drawn. So I don't, you know, all of the, the dynamics there to me says that there was an opportunity to do whatever you do when you go to other communities where they have the same shit going on. But unless people are saying that that's not the case, then maybe I'm crazy, but that's what I see. And so this is where, I'm, where, where I am. And by the way, when you talk about us being advocates, when you speak about you know, us being on one extreme because we're dealing with people who are on such a far extreme that we could never get extreme enough, 
in order to be able to counterbalance what we are up against in terms of how white supremacy is perpetuated within our communities. Um, but when you talk about that, from my position, the role that I think we take is one to look at the overall, not just situation by situation by situation, it's to look at the overall. And it's, and for me, I'm willing to stand up for the shooter and the person who was shot, right? I'm, I am an advocate who understands that whatever Micaiah Bryant went through for her whole life matters in the moment that we're looking at. It matters. It may not matter to a police officer. And perhaps, I know I'm talking long, but this is important to me. Perhaps the reason why a social worker, an anti-violence uh, uh, um, interrupter, a teacher, mama, auntie, and the neighbor can disarm and deal with these types of things without someone dying is because they actually care about the communities that they work in and the people that they're working with. Perhaps that's, that's the difference. That's the, that's the whole difference. There and here. That's, that's pretty much the whole thing. And that's my premise. It's like, you know, I understand what's justified. I understand what legal legally they can do. But I understand that me as a man coming from my community, if I come into my community, that's going to be the last resort. That's going not going to be the first, not within eight seconds am I going to shoot these two girls fighting and shoot. I'm going, I might, I might risk my own life. I might take, have to take one of those stab wounds before I'm trying to take a 15-year-old girl out, it's not going to be in my mindset. My moral compass does not allow me to say, hey, I'm the first thing I, I think is I have to completely take this lady's life. It just is not in me. And we need, we need, or first of all, we the, the screening process for who becomes an officer has to change, right? You can't just, you got to have more than just a, a high school diploma. At, at this point, you got to have, you got to have some level of Fortitude. You got to have some level of manhood, some strength. You can't be scared because the fact that we have these scared officers, because that's the first thing they said they feared for their life and they don't even be threatened. Like I got my homeboys that's in the park that have no training that have taken knives out of girls' hands. I've taken knives out of my sisters in them hands a million times. You know what I'm saying? So when we have officers who are who are trained and paid to come to our community to protect and serve, whose first thought is I'm so much in fear. I get out my car with my hand on my gun. I see two women. I never take my hand off the gun. I never try to intervene. I'm close enough to grab one of them. I don't reach. I just pull my gun out and I aim with this target because I see this knife in my hand and I'm so much in fear. If you come from our communities, then you're going to know that it's going to be knives all the time. You're going to come in there with a different mindset. You're going to understand what the dynamics is, what the culture is. How do you de you de-escalate? How do you disarm People, you know, what's the the risk, you, the real risk factor you deal with? We need people who understand that, and it's not just so much as them actually coming from the because the, coming from the community and understanding the culture is is definitely paramount to me. But it's just about having a level of manhood and bravery, right? We can't, you can't hire cowards to be police officers. But the but bottom. And, and I agree, and these are all important points, which is why this case is so important to have as a community, um, because there's so many different intricacies, and people are kind of finding, you know, what they want to latch on to. I like to deal with facts, you know, and because when I'm doing commentary, and I am usually debating somebody that is on the extreme right, I can't leave any opening for a what had happened was. So all of our arguments are, are important. 
but I try to stick to the overarching thing because we can't legislate somebody to care. We can't make somebody care. What we can do though is start talking about maybe we need to consider removing the shoot center mask. Maybe we need to consider removing, I was in fear for my life. Maybe we need to reconsider, like Tamika said, how do we disarm people? Because based on the facts, since 2005, 13,000, I'm getting into the punishment side, 13,000 deadly police shootings, only 106 officers were charged with murder or manslaughter, and only 33 of them were convicted, but not of murder, on manslaughter, which is the same thing of somebody driving drunk and, oh, I just accidentally, you know, killed someone. These are the facts. And when it says only four of them were convicted with murder, these are facts. So the part that we can change right now, while we're working to change people's hearts, while we're working to, because I always make it clear that defund the police is absolutely important because you guys do work. All of the other work that they say y'all don't do that I don't know, you keep repeating it over and over what you do, um, you know, for dealing with issues within our community. But all of those that defund the police mechanism plays into that, putting that money into the community so that you don't have volatile situations. And by the way, I'm not talking about black on black crime, white on white crime, Asian on Asian crime, Hispanic on Hispanic crime. Anytime people live among each other, there's going to be crime. So let's kill that, that, that argument. But defund the police does not deal with punishment. That goes into policy. That's right. We, when we talk about policy, we deal with the law, the law, and then administrative policy. Over 100 cities changed administrative policy since the death of George Floyd. We don't talk about that enough. Why are we not following that? New York City, into qualified immunity. Right. Colorado, the state, into qualified immunity. You heard more about New York because New York is the largest city and most folks talked about it. But people didn't even know Colorado did it at all. And they have some of the most progressive uh, police reform policies that they put in place. So it, to me, it all comes down to the policy. But we need all of these different voices. But I hope that all of us that are constantly, you know, in, in this conversation every day, live, eat, eat, breathe it, that we're centering it on policy. And that's what I'm asking. Make sure that we're including policy. Because I don't expect them to give a damn. I really don't. I, I expect until this changes, I expect them to continue to have problems recruiting uh, Black officers to work in the community. I expect them to have issues with people saying, you know what, I, I've known more Black officers who have retired since this foolishness because they don't even want to be associated, you know, with, with the type of gang banging that police officers are doing. I've removed knives from people's hands as a substitute teacher. I get all of that. I'm not expecting them to do what I do or care about what I care. What I'm expecting is that we have policy in place. Because actually, my son, there's policy in place that says taser first and, you know, areas of de-escalation that it should go up and up and up and up and up. I don't want to, for me, when I'm commentating it in the comments, I don't want to get caught up in the knife and you only had two seconds and he had to respond and it was legal. I think those conversations should be had. And I think you guys and others are doing an excellent jo job with that. When I am debating on TV, especially and within three minutes, I'm going to continue to say, what do we do to make sure five times people are not killed more like, because it leaves, it, it makes you deal with what it is. Each one of these cases are different. They're not all the same. We'll spend all day adjudicating. How about we direct that energy on complete reform, complete dismantle, not abolish, because we need police officers, my position. You have to have police officers. You have to have some law and order. But to dismantle, and, I, and we use this word reimagine, I guess because it sounds good, a safer word, but tear this shit down, 
<laughs> Bakari Seller said it great this morning. Tear it down and let's rebuild. And it starts at punishment first. Well, listen, that's the great Taz. Taz, the shot, the straight shot, no chaser. Listen, man, she going to get, you can't be in her comments talking crazy because she's going to give it to you that way every time. I just want to say thank you because that's your mentality is exactly with it, where I'm at with it. You know, that's the mentality that I have. Like, we need soldiers. And I think that's where my frustration comes from, that I see so few soldiers. You know, so many, even people that you believe are soldiers, that you believe are going to be right beside you. And I'm, I'm constantly disappointed by just the advocation and just some of the mentalities that some of these brothers have. And I think right now that I've really been moved to it. You know, I had a conversation about the Million Man March. You know, I had a conversation with the brothers. They had a celebration last year, and they want us to take it to the next level. And I think the Million Kings March is needs to be next. And where we start really redefining what it is for manhood, we redefining with soldiers what we need to be doing at this moment. Because our young brothers are watching some of these fake ass OGs and people that are saying they G's, and they following they you know they following what they're doing, and they ain't doing it right, they, or they ain't doing nothing at all. You know what I'm saying? So I think we have to regather our brothers and restructure our mind state, reestablish where we are as kings, what king, being a king means, what being a soldier means, and how much is needed in these times. So thank you, Tesla, for having more heart than most of the dudes that I talk to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Unfortunately, the woman around me is tougher than the dudes, man. And that's what I think really frustrates me. But Jay-Z said, my baby mama go what? Harder than you niggas. <laughs> Harder than you niggas, and it's the fact, man. So I just want to say we love you, Tez. You know, we could do this all day, all the time. And, you know, what you bring to this movement, you know, the way that you're able to take what it is that I do and just package it a little better, I love it. I appreciate it, man. I love it too. I appreciate it. Now, hey, I just want to say it again because I want everybody to be clear. My son want to get want to get y'all together. A million kings. You want to get Tesla? Tell you keep your ass at the house when it come to me. I'm not. I'm not Harriet Tubman. I'm honking the horn one time. You know, I've said this with Tamika before. Tamika said, "You go back and get them." I said, "No, I won't," because somebody got to know the bus gonna leave them. Because if they don't have that threat, we all have a role. My son really wants y'all to get it together. Tesla telling keep your ass at the house because somebody's gonna get killed or shot. So just stay at the house, do what you do, and just I just want 300 to follow me. That's it. Just 300 so that's all I need. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we're gonna let my son get, get a million together and we're gonna we gonna let him do that. And let's respect what we all do and let's keep it moving. There'll be 300 to come from the one million. So we get the one million. That's right. That's how we do. We love you, Tez. We appreciate you. Thank you, Tesla Figaro. It's so great to be with you, sis. And we can't wait to have you back again. Go Thank listen to Tesla's show, Straight Shot No Chaser on the Black Effect Network. It's Straight Shots No Chaser, man. Yeah. Push hey. the line. Push, Push the, the line. line. Get outside. <laughs> As usual, our sister, Straight Shot No Chaser. You know, Tez. I love to hear Tez talk that talk, man. She. She breaks it down so eloquently and then bring it back to the hood with it, man. Yeah. You know, but, but like she said, man, we definitely need to focus on politics, even though I hate politics and everything that goes with it. It's politics from the streets to the suites. You know, we need policy to be enforced that makes it a crime. You know, there has to be consequences. It makes it a crime for you to walk into our communities and just shoot four shots. I don't care if they got a knife. Nothing. You should put, there's supposed to be steps. You know, you got to get a taser, get involved. You might have to do something else, but we, we, we trying to preserve life in our communities. We need officers that believe that 
that empathize with us, that see us as human beings, that come into our communities, that want to leave and make sure that everybody leaves alive. You know, so that's what we got to be intentional about. I agree with you, Mice. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who feel differently. And of course, we know that uh, there are many police officers who all they want to do is get home and they want to keep everybody safe. But the ones that don't, they spoil the entire pot. And we're not going to let these folks off the hook. We're going to, you know, continue to raise our voices. And the more that people try to push back and justify the killing of Micaiah Bryant, it makes me even more determined to stand up for that young sister and to speak for her and to say her name. So, and I'm glad that- Before we leave, I would be remiss not to mention the young three-year-old boy who was killed in Miami, you know, gunshot, senseless gun violence. Brothers, we got to do a lot better, man. You know, I'm always going to hold the system accountable and make sure that they're accountable. But I want us to be accountable as well. When you hear stories like a young boy who was at his three, third birthday party, gunned down, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, we have to do a lot, of be a lot better in our communities. We have to hold ourselves accountable. We got to have so-called so OGs that's you in the streets and you in that lifestyle to, to have some level of consequences for things like that. You got to have real conversations with these young brothers. You know, the, f the fact that you just senselessly shooting and you ain't even hitting the person that you supposedly call out. You know, I don't understand how you keep shooting women and babies. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So maybe you should just stop shooting. How about since you can't hit the target you're hitting for, and you shouldn't be shooting at that target, maybe you should just stop shooting altogether. Maybe we got to find different ways. Maybe you could need to go out and shoot five, man. They used to give you a fade. You get into a beef with a brother, you used to knuckle up. And everybody went home afterwards and you shook hands. And if you didn't feel well, you fought them again. But everybody went home with their life. So, man, brothers, so once again, I want to say RIP to the young king, Elijah LaFrance, three-year-old, shot in Miami at his birthday party, man. We got to do better. We got to protect our young babies and we got to protect our women. We got to protect us. We got to do better, kings. Yeah. So once again, that brings us to the end of another show. This show was really heavy this whole week. Last couple of weeks have been heavy, man. R.I.P. Dante Wright, R.I.P. DMX, R.I.P. Black Rob, R.I.P. Elijah LaFrance, R.I.P. Makia Bryant. And to all of you or anyone who is suffering from addiction, reach out to somebody. There are a lot of places that you can reach out to to get help. Don't hold it in. Don't suffer. It's a really serious thing, and we notice that. So, once again... I'm not going to always be right. Tamika's not going to always be wrong. But we will both always be authentic. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, 
Real sweat, blood, and tears. Real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Limited time offer requires 0% APR, 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers, other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details.